Good evening, and welcome again uh, to our third large group of the semester for Reform University Fellowship. As I mentioned before, my name is Nick Bratcher. Uh, uh, I'm the campus minister of RUF. I actually don't know if I mentioned that before, but if I didn't, my name is Nick Bratcher. I'm the campus minister. Uh, it's so good to see all of your faces, new and old, um, even if they are uh, behind masks. I still appreciate that. Uh, one of the ways... Uh, or if if you're if you are new tonight or fairly new to RUF, uh, uh, one of the things I want you to know about RUF is that it's a UWM org for the convinced and the unconvinced to consider from Scripture the truth of Christianity in a loving community where you belong. Uh, one of the ways we do that considering in RUF is this large group, and our series this semester is a study through First uh, John that we've entitled "That You May Know." Uh, We've called it that because that seems to be a chief concern of John, Uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples and friends who wrote one gospel in addition to this letter. uh, The recipients uh, of John's letter seem to be confused uh, on a number of issues about who Jesus was and what he did. And John writes this letter to clarify these issues, to clarify where they might be led astray. And last week, as we studied the first half of chapter one, we were confronted with the truth claim that true happiness and joy are found exclusively in Jesus and the community that results from his life, death, and resurrection. As we continue making our way through this letter, our scripture text tonight is from chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 6 of the letter. If you have your bulletin, it's, it's there. You can look at it uh, with me there, but if you want to open up to it, that's good too, if you brought your Bible. Uh, and we're going to be really talking tonight, we're going to be talking about the issue of guilt. Uh, guilt is our shared lived reality uh, that we do not measure up to the standard. Uh, now, the Bible makes the claim that, uh, and we'll see this in a moment, that God is the one who makes the standard, that he is the one who sets his expectations for his creatures that he has created. And, uh, but I know that maybe not everyone here, as soon as I say guilt, maybe not everyone here thinks that God gets to determine what is right or wrong, right? I just, I said that earlier in our confession. Uh, So you don't believe in sin or, uh, you know, the possible guilt that could result from it. But here's the thing. I'll just say this in in way of passing, just to uh, allow us to get into the text and still for it to mean something as you are considering it. Um, Even if you think that you can decide best what is right or what is wrong, uh, I will still submit to you that you have a standard, right? You, you still have some sort of idea of what is right or wrong, some standard that you hold yourself to. And I'd simply ask, how's keeping that standard going for you? How's that going? Uh, ever uh, say anything to a friend that you wish you could take back? Ever been dumped or rejected, even though you made up in your mind that like, Uh, that all that mattered was that boyfriend or girlfriend's approval of you, Uh, the boy or girl you liked, them telling you they like you too. Uh, Ever bomb a test? Have you ever ever done really poorly on a test? Some of you guys are like, yeah, I got to be once. Um, And some of you guys are like, you don't know the meaning of bomb, right? Either person, right? I I will just say this. Whether you're the B person or the A person or the F person, um, there's this reality that like, there's this sinking suspicion. There's this sinking feeling sometimes that accompanies that, that like, I have not, like, met the standard. I, I 
am not enough. I'm not good enough. Uh, and, and the question is, with all these things, we all have these standards, these ways of telling ourselves that we are enough. And I, I submit to you, like, how is that going? Right? How is the, the guilt from not measuring up to that? What do you do with that? Where, where, where do you go with that? And most of us, if we're honest, know that it's not really going that well. We don't meet the standard we set for ourselves, let alone God's. Uh, we're guilty of doing what we shouldn't and leaving undone what we should do. We'll answer those. Uh, and, and the question is tonight, like what we really want to think about is how are we to think about that guilt? How are we to think about not meeting up at that standard? And, and what are we to do about it? Uh, we'll answer those questions by looking at three things from our text tonight. God's nature, our sin, and our advocate. So if you're the kind of person who takes notes, those are kind of our three headings tonight. God's nature, our sin, and our advocate. Uh, so let's read from 1 John uh, 1, 5 through 2, 6. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Uh, nice. Uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we, uh, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then I, two more verses uh, of chapter two. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, thank you for allowing us to meet in this room um, in the midst of a pandemic, uh, to study your word and to be together. Oh Lord, I do pray that we would let the that you would. Uh, actually, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so let's start our discussion of guilt by looking first at God's nature. God's nature. Look with me at verses 5 through 6 of chapter 1, very beginning of what we read tonight. As I mentioned before, in the preceding verses, right, John has just finished his introduction of Christ's work, whom he has seen and is now proclaiming to these people. And he's invited their, his readers to place their faith in him, uh, that they have this shared faith. And he has also unpacked how this faith in Jesus creates a community of true and complete joy. John assumes his readers are, are believing in these things. They are tracking with him. But now we get to where his readers might be facing some real uncertainty what could keep us from this promise of communing with God and one another? Right? That's, the, that's the, the attention he shifts to. What, what could keep you from doing that? Uh, John uh, will tell us shortly, uh, it's simple, it's sin. Uh, Jesus has cleansed us from it in his death on the cross, and we must confess this to live in the light of God and his people. Uh, but John doesn't start with sin, does he? He doesn't immediately move into, and here's what sin is, here's how you deal with it. Uh, he starts with God and his character, immediately moves from 
this message he's going to tell us, and then he tells us, start, starts his discussion on sin with God and his character. The reality is we tend, uh, because of post-enlightenment humanism, right, this idea that like the whole world revolves around human beings, we tend to see ourselves at the center of the universe, uh, so that even the gospel gets truncated, right? Even in churches, we tend to just talk about the gospel as you're sinful, Jesus saves you from your sin. That's the end. Uh, but the reason that guilt is an issue in the first place, John would argue, has to do with what God is like. Not first and primarily what you are like, but who God is. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Uh, John proclaims this truth. He says, because he heard it directly from Jesus. Now, admittedly, we do not have that episode anywhere recorded for us in the Gospels. Uh, We don't have this interaction where Jesus says exactly God is light. But uh, the sentiment is there. In chapter 8, verse 12 of his own Gospel, John records one such interaction. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. True and abundant life, as opposed to the darkness of death, is found only in following Jesus and walking in his light. Intellectually then, right, this means two things. Intellectually then, light is truth. Light is truth and darkness is error. Right, to say that, uh, that Jesus is the light of life, to say that God is light, is to say that intellectually, light is truth, and darkness is ignorance or error. And morally, on the flip side, right? And this was very common in John's day to even talk about all deities in a little bit of this light. But morally, light is purity and darkness is evil. Right? You kind of jam those two ideas together. Light means uh, both uh, intellectually, light is truth, and morally, it's purity. Darkness is ignorance or error or or morally, it's evil. Uh, And this maps well onto verse six, right? We see this, actually, John immediately tells us a little bit about this in verse six, because he says what the opposite of being in the light is. It's it's not practicing the truth. Practicing gets at the moral element that we're talking about, right? That you don't live out uh, the right ethical and moral imperatives, um, but also that you're not practicing the truth, right? Something that you know and observe and can see and understand. Um, someone who is in the light would be both cognitively and morally uh, living righteously. All good intellectually and spiritually is from God, and he is the sole source of that light. Uh, This is where John begins his argument for the gospel, right? Not with us, not with our sin, but with a perfect and good and gracious God at the center Uh, May I then submit to you this, this is what, at least it means this, uh, that John starts with that, uh, that any attempt to put ourselves at the center, to put ourselves and our desires at the center of our lives will then lead to darkness and death. It must then lead to unethical behavior and uh, unloving intellectually uh, disregarding the truth. Um, That's the assumption John is actually starting with because it's the claim that Jesus, he says, has made. Um, And I'll I'll submit to you this. If that sounds crazy, that like, if that sounds crazy to you, and if you're here and you're a Christian, it might still even sound kind of crazy that like there's no good 
apart from God, you, that your own desires and feelings are not the basis of what is good, but instead that God decides that. If that sounds crazy to you, um, I'll, I'd submit to you that like, I think we actually know this deep down. Um, it, it's become very trendy in television over the past like decade to kind of exploit this reality, to like put it on TV screens for us to like enjoy and watch as entertainment that like, uh, any sort of desire like that we have, if you follow it to its end, it usually ends up in like a, a severe amount of pain. If you really made life about that thing, it wouldn't go well for people. Um, so for instance, a couple of shows that do this, um, House of Cards, I don't know if you guys have ever watched that or are familiar with it, but it's a Netflix series about a, a politician who believes life is ultimately about amassing power for oneself and achieving success, right? These are, these are definitions that are readily apparent. Like, and it's good, right? You don't want to be unsuccessful and you don't want to be unpowerful. You don't want to be a walkover or, or accomplish nothing with your life. Um, but if you make that the center thing, if you make that, that desire for power and success, uh, these good pursuits, if you make them the ultimate thing uh, and, and made to be the light that illumines all of life, we find that the protagonist, right, at the end of that show, we find the protagonist is an evil man who will hurt people and do anything to stay in his version of what is light, right? He will kill people even, push them in front of trains, and it's all justified based on him seeking power and success. Um, Breaking Bad, if you've ever seen that, that TV show, it's a very similar premise, right? The idea is Walter White is a school teacher who desires status and security, uh, that wealth can provide. Uh, he's denied that, actually. Uh, he's edged out of like a very successful uh, pharmaceutical company uh, that he helped start. And the whole show is him bent on uh, making up for that, getting the status and security he feels he is owed and destroying people in the process. Uh, ultimately, it is God and God alone that is light and life. When we Look to other things, right? And the, the things that these TV shows are hitting on is when you look to other things to satisfy that deep desire, you find yourself in darkness, that those things cannot compete with the light that is God. God is the basis of all morality and knowledge of truth. He alone is perfect and good. And it's why you can build your life on him and who he is and you find that, that the Breaking Bad scenario does not happen. Um, I'll let y'all talk about some of the like lesser things, because I know some people, I can hear it already, like not everybody turns into Walter White who's not a Christian. I understand. Um, we, y'all can talk about that in your groups. Um, but that creates a dilemma for us, right? It, the reality is if, if God alone is perfect and good, that creates a dilemma for us. Uh, we are not perfect and good. We do go our own way a lot, seeking significance, status, safety, apart from God and who he has revealed himself to be, his ways. We may not end up, right, as bad as uh, Frank Underwood or Walter White from those TV shows, but we do wrong people, we do hurt people, even ourselves, as we insist on our own way and our own desires, um, trying to get significance, status, and power uh, we will trample over other people. We will talk about our friends behind their backs so that we look better. We'll divulge things we shouldn't so that uh, people will think we're funnier or smarter or whatever than we are. 
how then can we have a relationship with God, this perfect human being, or not perfect human being, he was a human being though, uh, this perfect uh, God who is, who is light, who is the foundation of all morality and truth. Um, well, uh, John wants to talk to us about that. Uh, that's our second point. Let's, let's talk about uh, sin. Look with me at verse seven of chapter one. Look back at verse seven in chapter one. Here, John introduces us to the hope, right? To the hope that we have come, uh, the hope that we have to come into the light from our darkened state. It's the blood of Jesus, right? That's, uh, that that blood allows us to come from the darkness and into the light. As verse six says, we actually cannot claim to have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness. We would lie and not practice the truth, further alienating us from God. But God has made a way for us to walk in the light. Uh, He has made us a way uh, to rely on the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from all sin. Now, verse 7 can be wrongly read, right? There's one way to look at this, and at first glance it might seem this way, that our walking in the light results in Jesus' blood cleansing us from sin. Right? That if you do that, if you are an upstanding moral person, uh, that, that... uh, that you can make God apply Jesus's blood to your sin and then you will be good. But that makes our ability to walk in the light, our ability to obey, our ability to confess or do whatever, our hope of cleansing would then lie in, in uh, earning our relationship with this good and perfect God. But verse seven is better read as John unpacking what it really looks like to walk in the light as opposed to the picture he's painted in verse six, where we're in the darkness. If we walk in the light, these things will be true of us, right? This is what John's saying. If we walk in the light, these things are gonna be true of us. We'll have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus will be cleansing us from our sin. It cleanses us from our sin. That's, that's the picture of what it looks like to walk in the light as a Christian. And in fact, uh, it's, that, uh, it's actually the promise that Jesus's blood will cleanse us from our sin that, uh, that John mentions in verse seven, that's what makes way for what follows in verses eight through 10. It is because of what Jesus has done, right? This is why he introduces it in verse seven. It's because of this cleansing power of Jesus's blood that we can then have confession, that we makes confession po- possible. Imagine the opposite being true, that uh, if you are sinful, then God will not apply Jesus's blood to you. And therefore you should never tell Jesus or God about your sin. It doesn't make sense. Uh, God invites us to confess in the assurance of pardon that he has secured for us in Christ. It is in walking in the light and trusting and knowing that Jesus covers our sin, right? That we are actually enabled to be honest about our sin. Uh, This becomes even more obvious in the context. Look at verse nine. Look at verse nine. Who is the faithful one, right? And and who is just to forgive our sins if we confess them? Who does the cleansing? It's not us, right? It's God. It's not our confession. It's not our work. It's not our doing, but rather God in his grace. And I, I spell that out to us because it's important for us to see how God-dependent and God-centered even our solution to our own shortcomings are. Uh, Even 
the solution to our darkness is not us climbing our way out of it, but God securing our relationship with himself, by himself, through himself, for himself. It's not about us doing more to be better people. John's not saying, now start walking in the light. He's saying, the way that you start by walking in the light is to see that Jesus's blood cleanses you from your sin. Accept that, confess that, know that that is true. He invites us to take hold of the promise of life in Jesus. This is repentance unto life. It is our saving grace, uh, but it is dependent upon God's mercy, not our effort. This means there is some bad news and good news uh, that is central to the Christian message. The bad news is, that there is really nothing you can do, right? That you really are in darkness. This is the reality of sin, that you can't make up for it. You can't, uh, one good turn doesn't cancel out your bad acts, right? You should have done what is right all along. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 19 about a servant who uh, comes to him uh, or comes to his master and says, hey, I made everything ready for your arrival home. And the master says like, good job. You did what I asked you to do. Right? Us doing what God has asked us to do, us doing the right things, doesn't mean that our wrong is canceled out. It means you finally started doing the right things. But that, that can't possibly make up for your sin. You really are dead in sin without God. You are in darkness. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. You can never, uh, sorry, the good news is this. Uh, it means that you can never be so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace, right? The two poles are this. You can never be so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace, but you can never be so bad that God's grace cannot cover your sin, cannot reach you. Um, and that's the truth that, that really John is unpacking as he talks about what it looks like to confess our sin. When I was a kid, uh, I used to run into my parents' bedroom a lot, uh, uninvited and without announcing myself. Uh, just like, surprise! And uh, if you know anything about uh, parents' bedrooms, they uh, did not appreciate my uh, behavior. And one time, I got a very, nothing bad ever happened, thank God, but uh, it could have. And one time, I got a very, very stern uh, talking to you about this behavior. And so stern, in fact, that I resolved that I would never, ever, ever enter my parents' bedroom again. I would never come into their bedroom under any circumstances, but uh, sometime shortly after that, and I'm like a little kid at this point, I don't, don't have a lot of like logical reasoning skills, but one night I got really sick and I threw up in my bed, um, afraid to go to my parents' bedroom. What I did was I took, literally took my sheets and flipped them over on my bed so that the vomit was on the like mattress side and then laid on that. And then you can guess what happened next. I vomited again. <laughs> And then I took my like bedspread and pulled it over the top and just laid on top of it. And then, yes, a third time it happened and I didn't know where to go or what to do. So finally I get up and uh, I, you know, like knock on my parents' door, but I guess they're asleep and I, I'm sure I don't want to go in. And so I just go back into my room and my parents find me the next morning laying in my floor uh, like sick and like cold and sweaty and, and disgusting because it's just all over me. Um, and the, the reality is, right, I, I will say that my parents were very loving and good to me. I misunderstood that they, like, they still want me to come if I'm throwing up. Uh, 
But, right, here's what happened. It was my lack of belief in their gracious disposition to me that forced me to sit in my own filth, right? Like, if you, th- if you think about what's going through my head as this, like, five-year-old Nick is sitting there is, my parents don't want to take care of me. They don't love me. So I should just sit here and deal with this mess myself. When I, what, what John is telling us is the opposite of that, that God is not telling you to get out of his room, but instead throwing open the door and begging you, begging you to see how much he loves you and cares for you, that he would do anything, including giving his own blood to cleanse you from your sin. The good news here is that God has secured it all for you. You can come to him and be honest about your sin. In fact, that's the only way forward. But why does God the Father accept that payment, right? That's the, that's the next question. Okay, the last lingering kind of loose end is like, okay, so we confess our sin, but like why would God just let me off with confessing my sin? Why would he let me off with just saying like, hey, sorry, I did this thing. Um, especially, man, if you knew some of the things I may have done, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that to me. Well, look at me at verses one through two of chapter two. Our last couple of verses today. John describes Jesus as an advocate. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, when this was written, uh, this word, uh, literally pericleo, uh, periclete, uh, was usually used to describe someone who would represent you in court. Uh, in a court of law, if you're accused of a crime. Uh, John paints this picture of us, essentially, by using this word, he paints the picture of us on trial before God the Father And Jesus is on our defense team, pretty strong defense team. Uh, But here's the greatest news of all. It's not enough that Jesus just says like, hey, uh, that that Jesus is our lawyer in the scenario, right? Because then uh, it puts uh, puts him in the idea that uh, an advocate alone would be somebody who would say they didn't know any better, right? Or, or, Or plead that we're innocent even when we're not. That's, that's not Jesus. Jesus acknowledges our guilt, But here's the good news of verse two. He also propitiates it. Uh, To propitiate, I know that that's like maybe a big uh, word. Um, It means to cover over or to appease. To cover over or to appease. It's it's often used in contemporary writings uh, at the time of like 1 John when it would have been written to describe uh, a a pagan practice where you would um, offer a sacrifice to an idol uh, if you were experiencing, like, let's say your local city is experiencing like a famine or maybe you had like a big hailstorm and it's like, you know, you're burned down a bunch of buildings. I don't know, right? You might offer a sacrifice to your local deity to try and get him not to be angry at you anymore for whatever you did, right? And he pours out his wrath on the sacrifice instead of on the people. Uh, but, uh, and this is, also why John says, like he's borrowing this idea. This is why John says it's not just for us, but for the whole world, right? Not just his readers in their one locality, but for the whole world that Jesus died. Um, it's, not, it's not that John is preaching universal salvation. It's that, um, and, and the reason that's not so is like, that would make all of his talk previous to this moment kind of superfluous, right? All his talk about like God being like, you need to walk in that, you Jesus like told us a message. You have to believe in that message. Like, why is he saying all of that? If he gets to this point, he's like, but it doesn't really matter because like Jesus did this thing. And so I don't even know why I'm writing to you. No, instead, right? 
He's saying Jesus' sacrifice is like one of those deities, but except it's not just for a local province, it's for wherever God's people are. His sacrifice is so big that no matter where you find yourself in the world, if you place your faith in Jesus, it is enough that God has poured out his wrath on another as it covers what lies beneath. It lies what you are the one who lies beneath uh, Jesus' covering over. God does have to judge sin. Uh, God cannot tolerate us hurting one another. He has to make that right. And in our Western sensibilities, we like kind of lose track of this. We think like God can't be angry. God shouldn't be judging people. The, the, the thing is like we often live like very cushy lives where we don't feel like we're hurt very often, but like try telling the person who has been sexually assaulted, try telling the person who lives in war-torn countries uh, because evil dictators want power and money and control. Try telling them that like God isn't just and he won't judge people for their wrongdoing. We, we're, we think of it as a foreign idea that God would be a judge, but I hope he is. Right, But at the same time, I'm caught in the crosshairs. And John says that Jesus has covered over our sin, that, that God has made a way to both judge sin, to actually judge it and give it the death it deserves, and yet not to us. Instead, he puts his wrath upon Jesus and he suffers the death, the separation from God on the cross that we should suffer eternally. On a Friday afternoon in 2012, um, there were a series of tornadoes uh, that tore through the town of Henryville, Indiana. A friend of mine uh, told me about this uh, when he, from when he lived in Indiana. And a woman who's on the local news, uh, her name is Stephanie Decker. She was at home with her young son and daughter and they huddled in the basement uh, as a tornado actually headed straight for their home. And, and just uh, before the storm hit, what uh, Jessica did was uh, she tucked both of her children under a blanket and she literally put her whole body over her two children. And as the storm uh, hit, uh, the storm, the, the, the tornado actually sent like wave after wave of debris on this woman as she's covering over her two kids and in the, in the process, actually, a, a steel beam uh, came and actually landed on both of her legs. Um, the result was uh, she had several stitches uh, to get after the, uh, after the incident, but also it left her lame in both of her legs. Uh, she could no longer walk. Um, but her two children, they escaped unscathed. Right? They emerged from the storm without a scratch, the reality of what she did was uh, out of her love for her children, she took the fury of the storm and saved them, rescued them. They come out scotch-free. It's not, it's not that uh, nothing happened to her, right? It's not that um, she did not absorb a penalty. It's not that she absorbed nothing to love her kids. It's that there was wrath that came upon her, right? There was a storm that hurt her. Um, and that is why her kids stayed safe. If you place your faith in Jesus, it's not that God just says, oh, are you sorry? Okay, like, that's fine. Uh, God is just, it's that he covers you with his love through the storm of his wrath. It's that he, through Jesus, right, as 
God the Father and Jesus work together to make this happen, and even the Holy Spirit uh, pushing us to accept this gift. Um, as the Trinity conspires to shield you and cover over your sin, uh, God has rescued you. Uh, God has loved us that much. And the question we all have to ask ourselves is, will we come to him in response? Right? Will we repent? Will we see God's love for us and move uh, toward him in confession? Let's pray. Lord, 